Hey everybody, it's Mark Roberts. Welcome to another episode of Let's Get Into Entertainment. The business of entertainment. The business of entertainment. That's Davy Dave, by the way. Uh, 2020 is not with us today. It's absent. But Davy Dave, today we're going to get into marketing, publicity, with a guy named Charlie Windischgrates. I was going to call him Chuck. Charlie <laughs> Windischgrates uh, has been in the business for many, many years, worked at Miramax, worked at Vanity Fair. In addition to doing marketing and publicity, he's an entrepreneur and has gone into many different uh, facets of entertainment business um, all over the world. And we're going to hear from him when we get back on Let's Get Into Entertainment. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Let's Get Into Entertainment. It's the business of entertainment, David Dave. I feel that. I love yeah. it. We uh, don't have Tootie with us today. No, he called in sick. He called in sick. He's uh, he's actually busy working. This is uh, <laughs> I love doing a show when Tootie's not here, not because I don't love him, but because it's part of life, right? We're yeah. all in the entertainment world. He actually has... An, you know, full-time job as the makeup artist to Mario Lopez on Access Hollywood. Yeah. He's also doing makeup for him on Saved by the Bell. The reboot, yeah. You know, and he went with us to Tahoe Mm -hmm. and uh, Carson City to do his makeup there. Exactly. And he was producing Access while we were there too. So the dude's got a lot of jobs and he comes here. But, you know, look, I think one of the cool things about him creating this show and, and wanting us to do it is that he wants real life you know, to be part of it. Right. And in addition to loving film and loving the industry, he's got to make a living. And, uh, and that's what he's doing. Well, today. this show is basically all his life. It yeah. Is. It's all about him. Yeah, right? It's all about him. <laughs> he does, uh, he, he does his makeup job where he gets paid to hand, you know, pay for his mortgage and his right. kids and to keep fixing that Volvo <laughs> keeps going down. And, uh, and he loves to do this show and he's doing uh, made in Mexico, which, you know, is, uh, I hear coming to an end. So that should be, uh, available to be watched. Uh, very, Pretty very soon. soon through Quiver and through, you know, all the channels that we have a uh, love and betrayal on the force on, which by the way is doing extremely well. I heard. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for your support. Uh, today is a really cool show because, uh, you know, what we haven't had on the show in the year that we've been on, uh, on the air is that we haven't really talked about publicity marketing. True. And you know, it's changed a lot because when I started in the business, it was so important to get on variety and so important to get on the reporter. And that was really the only place, right? So you woke up in the morning on a Tuesday and you ran, check, yeah, check that you paper. know, you ran over to check the paper and boom, there was, you know, uh, film news. And if you were in there, you were cool. And if you weren't, then, you know, you're on page seven somewhere. And <laughs> you know, all these things mattered where you were placed, where you, wh- what celebrities were in your independent film or in your TV show or whatever. So today we are going to talk about all that and how that landscape has changed with Charlie Windischgrates. I want to call him Chuck. Chuck. So Chuck, Chuck Windischgrates is here. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Oh my God. So, you know, you and I have been friends for years and years. Our kids have played basketball together. They're buddies, they're best friends. Your family's my family. You know, we've known each other for a long time, but, uh, but you know, this show is really about the entrepreneur spirit. There was a time when you only did one thing as a living, you know, if you were in the car business, you were in the car business, you know, now, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're involved in all types of businesses. Now, you know, it reaches over entertainment has reached over into 
alcohol has reached over into car, you know, and maybe it's always been that way, but it just feels more accessible now. Right. So you have been involved in many different types of business, but I want to talk before we get into marketing and publicity and the business that you're entering now, let's talk about how you got your start. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in LA? No, I didn't. I grew up in Germany and in England. And both my parents came are from Europe and my mom moved here when I was 15 years old. And uh, I followed soon after, um, fell in love with this place, obviously. And one of my first jobs, I, I went to USC and one of my first summer jobs, my mother was friends. Oh, with, you're one of those. Yeah. You're one of those this SC was definitely, boys. Oh man. Oh yeah. This was definitely <laughs> nepotism favors called in. So my mother um, had a friend who was at ICM. And arranged for me to uh, work there one summer. Yeah. And I showed up the first day and they were still in the old building on Beverly. And I walked into the mailroom and someone said, this is Charlie. And he's a friend of, you know, one of the top guys over there. And everyone in the mailroom looked at me and I thought, this is going to be a long summer. <laughs> well, there's no friendly at ICM or any other agency for that matter. You know, it's all about, it's like walking into a den of wolves. Well, the, you know, the competition in the mailroom is, is as fierce, if not fiercer right. than it was between the agents yeah. know, who were, let's say this was late eight, this was late eighties. Yeah. So all hell was breaking loose. I mean, it was pretty fascinating, but I think what it did was it taught me what part of the business I probably didn't want to go into. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, I just, I wasn't that type of a person. Yeah. I just wasn't that alpha aggressive, yeah. ready to take down everybody on the same floor. Right. How old were you when, when you did so that? So I was probably 18. So you were 18 or 19. So you were at SC. That was kind of like an internship. Then. Exactly. It was an internship, yeah. but it, it taught me pretty quickly, uh, you know, where I didn't want to go. Yeah. Um, and then I had, I had some friends in college who were uh, working at real estate firms in the summer and they would come back at the end of the summer and say, dude, I made, you know, $38,000 rented, you know, five industrial buildings. We were all like, Oh my God. You know? <laughs> so, you know, when we graduated, a lot of us uh, ran straight into real estate. Right. And you know, that was the late eighties and yeah. almost all the high rollers who were driving BMWs within a year were then bartenders at the red onion within a year after that. That's my favorite Some fun places. Yeah. Right? Um, Mr. J's in El Monte. No, I'm just kidding. That's oh, crazy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was, that was probably uh eye opening experience because I don't know, look, entertainment and, the 10 percenters as they're called sometimes, I don't know. It, it's a weird subculture, you know, and you have to, you have to really be, it's gotta be in your DNA to yeah. be an agent or a manager, I think. And there's, you know, there's great ones and I think they're necessary, but, uh, but yeah, I know that as you get into the mail room and you know, you've got all these people that want to move up quick. I mean, come on, honestly, uh, you've got agents that were in the mailroom a year and a half before they became the right. agents, you know? So, so when you were in there, you just didn't see anything you liked. Well, I, I kept, I kept trying to figure out how to get myself out of the mailroom. So I would go up to my mom's friend to his office and say, you know, can I answer calls or you know, get myself out of that mailroom nest? And uh, so I got to spend more and more time working with, uh, with him and taking notes and, you know, yeah. connecting calls and, and I thought that was much more exciting. But the more I did that, 
And every time I went back down to the mailroom, I got a lot of crap for it. You yeah, know? I'll bet. You got to sit next to the throne and uh, do everything that everyone else wanted to do while they were there, right? You know, I got to go down and report that I had just seen Barbara Carrera in, <laughs> in the office and, you know, things like that. That's and, funny. And there was this very strange thing. There was a limousine in the basement that was kept for God knows what. Oh and it God. was always there. And, for meetings. Uh, yeah, uh, for meetings, quote unquote meetings. Right. And we were not allowed near it, but, you know, it's it just Funny. sort of highlighted how crazy things were yeah. then. I mean, the 80s were, were a good time. So then what was your next step? You went, you finished college. Right. So after that, I realized, well, you know, if I'm not going to be an agent, I really didn't know much. about. I was never a filmmaker or, you know, anything on the creative side. So, uh, you know, I did, did a bit of real estate, worked for a developer and drove I don't know, 50,000 miles in my first year. And he gave me the territories of, of uh, Chino, Pomona, Santa Fe Springs, I Downey. Well. And so I would just drive up and down those streets trying to see what industrial buildings or land they could buy and then build something on. But I felt, you know, that was pretty, uh, that was not a great, I didn't enjoy that at all, just driving around for so hours. So I, I think this is really cool. This, this is interesting because- you know, we know where you ended up. We know you ended up in marketing and publicity. Um, is there a history of, of that work in your family? Well, my mother, when I was really little, we lived in New York for a while. And my mother got this job one day with the Monaco, which is Monte Carlo, as a lot of people know it. The tourist office in Monaco said, oh, Caroline, you speak fluent French. Would you, would you come work with us? And so she did. And the, within three weeks, the vice consul died oh. and she got a call from the, the palace, which was Prince Rainier, right? Yeah. <laughs> Saying, uh, we need you to become the acting vice consul. Hmm. And she, you know, wow. I think she was in her late twenties. She had no idea. So she, one of the things she did that really started the marketing was she was, she knew the, the Lowe's corporation and helped get the first Lowe's hotel into Monte Carlo, wow. which was a big deal. It was the Tisch family. And, you know, and of course, you know, some of the Tishes out here. That's right. And, uh, but anyway, she then headed up their tourist office, which involved a lot of PR. And so she learned the PR world. Yeah. And maybe she got some of that from my grandfather, who was at British Petroleum in the 50s in England. Wow. And he was in the PR department and made all the promotional films for BP. And oh, his wow. first friend and cameraman was Sir George Martin, who ended up making all the Beatles movies. Wow. So, but I never felt PR was something, you know, wow. I don't think you grow up saying, God, I want to be a publicist. You know, I think you fall into it in a way. It's interesting how it was around you. So potentially it was something that sort of, you just picked up through osmosis. You could see it happening around you. You could see your mom doing it. You know, it was just part of the history of your family. Yeah. So I think the segue for me was I then, my mother was uh, the West Coast editor of Vanity Fair at the time and uh, working with Tina Brown, who was the famous editor. And, uh, and I had met a lot of people in publishing and they said, well, Charlie, why don't you go into publishing? I said, well, the first offer I got from Vanity Fair was for $13,000 a year. And I said, you know, that was never going to happen. They said, well, no, go on the advertising and the marketing side. There's much more money to be made there. And you get a car. And I thought, <laughs> oh my minute. God, this sounds good. So I went, I was told you have to go cut your teeth somewhere else. So I went to Ticketmaster 
which was launching an entertainment magazine, put a lot of money behind it. And it was a fantastic experience. And I got to really learn the ropes, had a great publisher and advertising director who taught me everything I needed to know. And I was there for a couple of years. And then the New Yorker came calling and said, listen, we hear, you know, you're the guy who can sell car advertising to the car companies. We're, we're down in that category and we need you to come over. So I went over to the New Yorker, which was sort of the, you know, the real status. It was such a great place to work and it had such respect from people and the audience for the New Yorker is, is, you know, they're rabid, right? They wait for their New Yorker. So it was a really cool place to work. And some of the best people in the business work there. And on the first day, as I sat down at my desk and I put my pencils into the cup, my phone rang and it was someone that I knew who had gone to this new company called Yahoo. And would I be interested in going to help him run the ad sales department at Yahoo? And I said, (laughs) first of all, I don't know who you are. I mean, I don't know what it is. And I don't know anything about that. And I just started at the New Yorker. And it doesn't sound very good. So I referred him to someone else who ended up going and making a lot of money. I'm sure that was the days when you just got like tons of stock. Hey, we're going to experiment with this brand new company called Yahoo or Google. Um, I want to go back for a sec because I know we just kind of glossed over it. Your mom was the West Coast editor for Vanity Fair. Now that's historic. I mean, that's a really big deal. What was it like? It was incredibly exciting because they really sort of defined a new category. You know, Tina Brown was the magic behind it. And Cy Newhouse, who owned Condé Nast and all the magazines within the group, New Yorker and Vanity Fair and Vogue, probably being the biggest ones in the group. But he said he brought Tina Brown over, who was in her 20s, and she was this hotshot British editor. And he said, we started this magazine because Vanity Fair had been around before the Depression been around in the 20s and 30s and had died out. And so he relaunched it. And he said, this is what I want it to be. And it failed miserably in the beginning. And so he brought Tina in to kind of give it this sort of no holds barred. Let's try everything else. Let's break the rules. And she had a really good nose for what celebrity had become and also really good journalism and fantastic photography, you know, that you could make it visually captivating and also write really good stories, good exposés. You know, you can make it a great variety of things in a, in a package. I think that's what resonated with people. It mattered that the advertisements in these magazines look a certain way, right? Be attractive to the types of readers that read these magazines. So how did it work in that area? So as you were working with New Yorker about what you were talking about, which was the car what, what was the position you were talking about? It was, it was advertising, but right. it was, you know, focusing on the car companies because right. we had all the Japanese car companies were here based in Torrance. So what was the sort of, what was the idea behind that job? So first of all, if you look at someone like Tina Brown as an editor, what was new was that she was really given free reign, which is incredibly expensive because it means you can commission writers, the best writers in the world to write you an article. Right. And then you may, you may not use it. it, sits on a shelf, right? I mean, you're used to that in the, in the movie business, but right. in the magazine business, that was pretty unheard of. And she could do a photo shoot for $250,000 with the best photographer and then say, you know what? I don't feel like using it. So I think there was a lot of pressure on the advertising side to generate the kind of revenues that were needed to help pay for that kind of editing, which right. hadn't been seen before and probably will never be seen again. 
That's but, crazy. Oh, so one of my jobs, especially when I got to the New Yorker, was a lot of these ad agencies who represent, you know, Acura, Lexus, Toyota, Honda, Nissan, they would say, look, your readership is getting too old. They're set, they're set in their brands. We're never going to convince someone in their 50s to buy a Toyota or a Lexus if they've been driving a Cadillac all their lives. And my job was to go in and convince them otherwise, that there are so many factors that play into the lifestyle, the message of what people will buy, and that that's not true anymore. Right. That's amazing. So, well, I tip my hat to you. I mean, both, uh, you know, your mom's story, the story of you going to to the New Yorker is pretty amazing. Um, Before we move forward with where you went, what is the difference now? You know, there's no magazines really to speak of anymore. You know, even entertainment news, which I was saying before, you know, it mattered to get that reporter in the, you know, on Tuesday and, you know, get the variety on Friday, you know, all that stuff was so important. And now it's all coming online and now variety and reporter are important. I think reporter only puts out, this is entertainment stuff, but it only puts it out if once a quarter or if it's variety, I'm not sure which one of them do it. But, um, but now there's like things like deadline, you know, all these different other sources to get your news. What happened and where did that transition occur? And where did, I mean, because I know people are making maybe as much or more money in advertising than they did before. Where did all that specialized work go? Where did all, all of those articles go? How did, what happened? Well, you know, there's so many things in that question that, that, that happened, you know, there are probably 20 factors in there that were affected. It was sort of a domino effect. You know, you all of a sudden have the internet, which comes along. And if you're talking about an advertising side, we used to say, this is our audience and this is who will see your ad. We're, we're printing 750,000 copies and we assume all 750,000 people will see your ad, right? That was pretty much all you could tell them. And there was a certain faith they have to have in your brand and your magazine that it's going to be worth it, right? Along comes the internet where now every click through, every view can now be tracked. So all of a sudden there was this instant accountability, which of course for an advertiser is a much more efficient way to spend your money, Right. I can guarantee you that these people are going to see it and will only pay you for click throughs. You know, that was a game changer. It it really hurt the magazine format because you had this instant accountability. Is that what killed, I guess that's what killed magazines, right? I mean, it was sort of the advertising portion. The ad revenues are what generated a lot of the, the contraction Then you couldn't afford to have the best writers anymore. And I mean, I can't tell you how many incredible writers I know in LA who don't have jobs, you know, who used to write for the marquee magazines and newspapers, and they just don't have a job because there isn't enough demand for it. That's crazy because I'll tell you, when I think about the ability as a salesperson to say to someone, look, you can go ahead and advertise in that magazine that has 750,000 readers, or I'll give you this digital ad, which is going to have a million impressions. And if for some reason we don't get you those impressions, I'll give you another month or two for free. Right. Cause they could, that's a, that's how it's advertised. Right. So I'll get it for you. Like no matter what you'll get it, you'll pay for it. If I don't get it, I'll move it over here. I'll throw it over there. So I can see that conversation really becoming powerful back in like, I don't know, two thousands, I guess really, because right. the internet started really in 94. 
Yeah, it really took till the early 2000s, yeah. but, but it came so quickly. It did, right? And, and you know, the thing is that the ad agencies or the brands will have a pie, right? We're going to spend, let's say, $100 million in advertising, and maybe you had 40% of that going to print, right? Now, all of a sudden, you have 20% going to print, then 10 then five. So print was fighting for a much smaller share yeah. as that went to online advertising. You know, and what's crazy about that is, you know, I was talking to Ann about it the other day, my wife, and we were talking about, I love Lucy when it was on television, right? Yeah. So you had 50 million TVs and I don't know how many they were. I'm, I'm guessing now, but that whatever amount of viewers had TVs in their house, um, I believe that it was the majority of them had I Love Lucy on, like they would actually turn it on. So if you had a TV, you were watching I Love Lucy. Right. Very rare if you weren't. So the viewers were higher than they are now. Now you have a show that gets 900,000 viewers and that's a big deal. It's so spread out. There's so many digital networks, which by the way, we're going to get to a little bit later, but there's so many ways to now spread out that advertising dollar because there's so many television stations and streamers and online views and YouTube and all these places that now the amount of people that have to be reading or watching or clicking on something is not that much. Like it's so spread out, right? Yeah. Um, Do I have that right or am I completely off track? No, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, we're all consumers, right? So we look at the variety of what's out there every day. And, you know, between my wife and my two kids, we're all over the place, right? And we all go watch our own thing. But it means we're very fractured. So we're not all watching the same stuff. Yeah, that didn't happen before. The, The family would get around the radio for a while, right? And then they started getting around the TV, which was I Love Lucy and the Honeymooners which were the top shows, those shows had more viewers than the hit shows of today. It's true. And I want to give a shout out to Gilligan's Island and Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> and uh, Courtship of Eddie's Father. Oh, I wanna, yeah. I want to shout out to Courtship. Um, but it is a trip how quick things are changing because there's a lot of kids that don't even know magazines were a thing. That's right. You know, they think there's the advertisements that come in the in the mail are like a magazine. Like they don't understand. Like they see us magazine people. That's, that's what they know. You'll find the, the iconic ones, you know, the New Yorker vanity fair, there's still a large enough percentage of subscribers and newsstand sales that really demand to have that, that tactile, that paper feel, Yeah. you know, I mean, I still get four magazines and it's just because there's probably part of me is just to keep the magazine business going. And the other part is that I, I do want to take a break from my screens and yeah. just flip through it, you know, although it's, my iPad can go anywhere a magazine can. So that's not an argument anymore. I still love the idea yeah. of being able to go back if I want. Right. It's about the choice. That's remarkable. Okay. So I'm sorry. I went off on a tangent on this whole <laughs> magazine thing, but uh, so you're at the New Yorker. How long did you spend at the New Yorker? I was in the New Yorker almost five years. Um, and one of the things that happened is I want to tie this back into marketing was that after about the second year, advertising agencies and brands started saying to us, listen, we want more than just the ad page. Right. And I was thinking to myself, that's idiotic. You know, you, you want to be in the magazine and they were like, yeah, we'll be in the magazine, but we need, you know, if it was Cadillac, 
We want 12 ride and drives with your subscribers that you're going to pay for. That'll be thrown in as what they called added value. And it was funny to watch because every year the added value became more important than the pages in the magazine. Right. And we all complained in the early days because it made our job much harder, right? We used to go sell ad pages and you knew what you were selling and they bought your pages and it was easy, right? It was an easy transaction. Now, all of a sudden we had to become marketers. We had to come up with marketing plans and, you know, we went kicking and screaming, but I will forever be grateful for that push that they, the ad agencies mostly force us into. We had to get very creative and so did every magazine out there. And, you know, we were throwing gobos of Lexus across from the music center, you know, and doing all kinds of high level dinners and, you know, meet and greets. And it just made us be more creative. Dude, that's marketing. Like exactly. That's massive marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when did you leave? So I left the New Yorker. Tina Brown left. And then she asked me to go with her to start uh, Miramax Talk Media. She had sat down with Harvey Weinstein and they had hatched a plan to develop a new magazine, a book publishing group that would look at movie rights and things like that. And so Miramax Talk Media became this whole, you know, standalone company. Hearst was the partner in the magazine part. And we launched what was called Talk Magazine, which was probably the most successful magazine launch in history. Dude, you're, you've been part of lots of successful uh, teams. Uh, for instance, the um, Cheviot Hills girls basketball team. Well, I do want to tell your listeners that Mark Roberts is probably oh. the winningest coach in Cheviot Hills Recreation Center wow. history. We and almost went all the way that one year, we didn't did we? We almost yeah, all the way. We, we, had, we were robbed. <laughs> yeah, we'll get back into the uh, headband gate in a second. Um, but going back for a sec, uh, if you're listening and you're a producer, director, content creator, I was on Mexico's Next Top Model as an executive producer, and I'd not done a show like that mm -hmm. before. And part of the challenges where you were going to have girls market certain cars because, you know, beautiful women, when they win tournaments or whatever, they end up becoming spokesmodels, right? So this all ties in. So we would get this email like two days before we had to do the commercial challenge episode where each girl was to perform in a Volkswagen commercial. So I would get the memo and we would have to create the episode where the girls got picked up in a Tijuan or I, I don't know if that's what they're called. Tijuan, Tijuan or something like that. They got picked up in a Volkswagen Tijuan and they got driven individually in different colors to their sets on that set. They would then do a commercial for the Volkswagen and the words, everything they said, everything that was said, the angles, the shots of the car all had to be pre-approved. So to do that episode and to get Volkswagen as a sponsor of the show, all these things had to happen and we had to adjust to the network and how that worked. And we had to kowtow to Volkswagen and Volkswagen had to be happy and had to approve everything. So that was an added like jump, jump through this hoop uh, in addition to doing a show that was very complicated to do. So I think across the board, um, no matter what business, of entertainment, what part of entertainment you're in, you've got to deal with advertisers. Yes. 
no matter what. And as we yeah. keep talking about this, we're going to get deeper and deeper into like how advertising sort of monetizes and controls everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, did you meet Harvey when you were at? I did. And we would get a heads up. We were here in the LA office. So we would get a heads up from the Miramax office manager. We were in their offices on Beverly uh, that Harvey was coming. And so I would say to, to the people on my staff, just be careful. Don't be in the halls. <laughs> and uh, you know, you, you just sort of laid low. Um, I, he caught me in the hall a couple of times and I mean, I did not spend a lot of time with Harvey and I don't think Harvey spent a lot of time worrying about what we were doing. You probably didn't spend a lot of time with anybody. Right. But if he did catch you you, you, and and he was in the wrong mood, you certainly were in for some, some verbal abuse, you know, uh, which surprised me. You know, I hadn't, I'd had some very mercurial publishers like at the New Yorker, you know, some larger than life characters. I remember I was in the New York office and two salespeople closed their doors and the publisher walked down the hall with a baseball bat and smashed the doorknobs off. And he's like, <laughs> if your doors close, you're hiding something from me. You know, it was oh, that kind yeah, of a thing. Yeah. It was really outrageous. But at the time it just seemed, you know, these were these larger in life guys. And so Harvey was like that, but he was a little, he was a little meaner yeah. and a little more unpredictable. So we just stayed out of his way. And, you know, for three years, Miramax Talk Media had a good run. We had a great magazine. And then, you know, sadly, 9-11 happened. And advertisers pulled almost all their advertising, all the airlines, all the big, the big budget advertisers that you needed pulled their, pulled their ads almost right away. They felt it was inappropriate to be in magazines. It was sort of frivolous. And that's very hard to argue with, especially at that time of the tragedy. And I think that reassessed for Tina Brown, who was our chairwoman and, and our editor, uh, you know, what do we do? Do you, how do you keep this alive? And yeah. I think she realized that it wasn't going to stay alive. Harvey was not interested in injecting more money. Right. Uh, Disney was neither. And so it was folded, which, you know, in hindsight gave us all the opportunity to then go on and do other things. Yeah. I'm, and, um, you know, I'll tell this story because I was in um, Sundance one year. I can't remember what year it was, but we, oh, it was the year that Shine premiered. Do you remember the movie Shine about the piano player? Jeffrey Rush. Jeffrey Rush won the Academy Award for that. Yeah. Anyway, I was in, I was, I'll never forget it because I was so upset. My partner, Lorena David, had gotten us two tickets to Shine and it was at nine o'clock in the morning in Sundance. We had gone to a party the night before, right? <laughs> so you had to wake up at really early because you had to get on a bus and then there had been three blizzards overnight. So, you know, it was snowed in. So I went to the movie, you know, I stood up, applauded, you know, standing ovation nine o'clock in the morning for shine. So we have reservations at this, uh, at this restaurant, which is impossible to get reservations because you set it up a year in advance. We show up there. Oh, they're not letting anyone out. Why? Because Fox just beat out, Harvey Weinstein for shine. They bid less money than him and the filmmakers sold it to Fox and he flipped a couple of tables at the restaurant. So literally, yeah, oh, wow. literally he went, walked up to the guys at Fox, flipped tables, got all pissed threw champagne bottles and, and went crazy and um, didn't change anything. I think, um, I want to say Fox. If I'm incorrect about Fox, don't send me emails. But it, it was whoever was bought it. New it. Line? No, it, it was some. Maybe it was New Line. I, I, I can't remember who it was. That. Whoever it was, it wasn't Harvey. <laughs> but um, but you know, on that note, 
people like Harvey can't really exist in our world anymore. No. I mean, people that screamed at other people or treated people improperly or bullied employees. I mean, we're not living in that time anymore. No, I, I was surprised because I was lucky. I was, I was a part of Miramax. I was considered a Miramax employee, but at the same time, we weren't part of Miramax's core business of making films. So I didn't really, you know, interact with that side of the team. But every day I would talk to people who worked at Miramax and they were all, you could tell there was this, I'm going to be here. It's the greatest place to work. And, you know, in terms of reputation Sure. and I'm going to, I'm going to stick it out yeah, and then, and then I'll go somewhere else because I've now worked at Miramax. So I think there was a lot of, you know, I'll take the hit, I'll work my ass off and then I'll go somewhere else because I've been here. All right. Important questions too. You had this incredible run with the Miramax talk magazine. You leave and I mean, obviously you have a big history now with magazine, with advertising, with the sort of changing trend of, of advertising in magazines and in, uh, and the cross referencing of this in film and all that. What did you do next? Well, I will tell you that Tina Brown, God bless her, waited until January 2nd to close the magazine, which meant that all of us who were on contracts had another year. And that was an incredible luxury to have that breathing room. And that gave me time to say, okay, what am I going to do? She's smart. And, you know, she was also, it was great for all the employees. She said, look, I could spend a million dollars bringing out one last sort of last gasp issue, or I could save that money and make sure that all the employees are taken care of. So I will always be grateful to her for that. God bless her. huh? Uh, Exactly. But what it did was it gave me a little bit of time to figure out, okay, so what assets do I have? Do I want to stay in ad sales? No, probably not, because I saw the magazines. I saw the, where it was going. There was a lot less heat, a lot less energy, a lot less talented people trying to get into it, and a lot of the talented people trying to get out. So I thought, okay, time to face reality. What's the next chapter? And within about six weeks, we got a call, and I say we because my mother was also was the West Coast editor of Talk Magazine. We sort of came as this package <laughs> that we kept going to magazines together. She was at one end of the hall and I was at the other. We made the money and she spent it. Right? <laughs> How cool but is that? We got a call from someone at the music center saying, you know, we're opening the new Walt Disney concert hall. And we're worried that really the entertainment community doesn't really know what's happening with this new building or what's going on or care. You know, it was very much about performing arts and it hadn't been well-funded. So it had taken forever to build this Frank Gehry masterpiece, right? I was going to say the Frank Gehry, right? Exactly. So this is what we're talking about. And they said, we need your help to really build the buzz on this thing. And that was literally how we started C4, which was our communications company. We said, okay, we will help you build awareness for this. We will go talk to all the leaders at the agencies. We'll talk to actors. We'll talk to influencers in this town to build the buzz. We will get some of the big names to come to the opening gala. And we really helped give it a boost of exposure, which built the media exposure, which built the international presence. You know, so I think that was our first taste of, okay, this is a different business, but we can do it. Right. And then two weeks later, General Motors, the head of global communications for General Motors called us up and he had been at a talk magazine dinner 
with all the other big hitters. And he said, I've got the chairman of General Motors coming for the L.A. Auto Show. And I don't know what to do with him. And we can't just have him downtown at the Bonaventure Hotel. And we said, well, let's have a dinner at Spago. Wolfgang Puck said, of course, created a special menu. And we'll invite all the top influencers in L.A. that we can to meet all the top people at General Motors. This is the biggest corporation by value at that time in the world. And there's no reason these guys shouldn't all be talking to each other. So we invited, you know, the the heads of the studios. We invited, uh, you know, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer to come and Jay Leno, of course, being a legendary car guy. And through your work and your mom's work, you guys had access. We did. Yes. And I would say, you know, my mom had a lot of access from her days arranging interviews with these people for Vanity Fair and the New Yorker. So she had, some of these people had been junior execs or junior agents pitching her in the early days and they had grown up to become, you know, studio. Ah, She must've been nice to them. Good for her. Right. (laughs) David, Dave, you gotta be nice to people on the way uh, up, right? Always be nice. (laughs) That's a great lesson. And it's so true. And I think it it paid a lot of dividends to have been nice and and built those long-term relationships with these people, no matter where they were. Right. Because studio execs move around quite a bit. So you have to have faith that that person is good enough and talented enough to end up somewhere else. So you guys started with some huge accounts, but you ended up with even, you know, a lot more in Mont Blanc. Is that how you say that? Yes, it is. Mont Blanc. Uh, So you guys were international. You guys were handling stuff from all over the world. We were, we worked with uh, one of our fun, one of the, one of the great accounts that we've had that's been incredibly loyal is, is Herb Alpert and the Herb Alpert foundation. Tijuana brass, man. Come on. Herb has been a, a, one of our great clients for 13 years now, and he is just an incredible, incredible person. And, you know, if you look back at him and he's got a documentary coming out called Herb Alpert is coming out October 1st. Can't wait. And I mean, you watch, this is a guy who for 50 years has been, you know, a part of American culture. He outsold the Beatles two to one. Wow. In 1966 in their heyday. You know, yeah. this, he was anyway, cool. Super I digress, cool. but yeah. you know, it's, so it's been incredibly rewarding. We have a group of nonprofit clients that we advise. Uh, so just to put a pin in Herb, Herb, you've been doing some stuff musically with him too, through, in your work with him, right? He's done some stuff at schools and correct. So Herb has given over $185 million to the arts Wow. As a supporter of educational programs, it's, you know, most of it focuses on arts. He's obviously a huge jazz supporter. And also there's a compassion and well-being part. He runs a lot of that through the foundation, obviously, which is an amazing organization. Um, but yes, he, he has the Herb Alpert School of Music at UCLA. Oh, UCLA. Although Herb did go to USC for a couple of years and right. was in the band. What Herb did was he gave the, the School of Music a significant amount of money. I mean, a major amount of money, tens of millions. And they then named the school after him. Uh, I think, you know, in gratitude for that. That's amazing. Well, you know, he is a legend besides his band, the Tijuana Brass. uh, Was that his band? It was. So besides his band, the Tijuana Brass and all of the albums he sold, he also started A&M Records. That's right. Uh, He had A&M Studios, um, which is right there on La Brea. Amazing studios. The old Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, the old Charlie uh, Chaplin right. studios. And he discovered the Carpenters. That's right. Right. And recorded them to millions upon millions of dollars. Um, was he involved with any other 
big, big groups. Yes. Well, he, yeah. So, I mean, there are a couple of just quick stories yeah, that I, I love. And, and by the way, Herb is one of the most gracious, unassuming people. He'll talk to you. Rich guys ever. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, he's wonderful. I just have yeah. to say that. But he, uh, he once told me that they had the sex pistols and the sex pistols were recording in their studio to wrap up their album. You know, uh, was it something about the queen that, you know, freaked everyone out in yeah. England and, uh, they went nuts, trashed the studio. And this was all basically in the can and about to be released. And he called Jerry Moss, his partner, the M in A&M, because it was Alpert and Moss, right? right. A&M. And he said, uh, no, I don't want them here. And so they, they fired them basically and told them to walk. Oh my God. And this was, you know, on the eve of their big can't album get them all coming right. out. And <laughs> I think, I think they went to Sony who was like, yeah, we'll take those crazy people. But they were, Herb founded A&M on the basis that he didn't want to have a studio or, or a recording uh, company where the artists were numbers that he wanted to create a place where he as an artist would be comfortable and be allowed to nurture. And he, you know, he had super tramp, the police, one of the big ones, Janet Jackson, Cat Stevens. And then there was a band called humble pie, which was an amazingly talented band. And they had a lead guitarist, uh, Peter Frampton. Jeez. And they all liked Peter and they didn't quite know what to do with Peter when humble pie broke up and they put out an album and it bombed. And this is what I've heard, right? So the album bombs and Herb and Jerry are saying, God, well, what do we do now? And then there were rumors that his concerts kept selling out. They're like, well, wait a second. Why won't people buy his albums? You know, but they'll go to his concerts. So they went to the concert and they saw him live and they were like, oh my God, it's got to be a live concert. <laughs> a live guy, so yeah. they created Frampton Comes Alive, which is to this day, I think the most successful selling LP in history, something like that. Yeah, that's remarkable. Mm. Um, but I just wanted to talk about Herb for a minute because, you know, you work with him, you've worked with him for a lot of years yeah, and thanks. he is a legend. And uh, he's done incredible things that uh, that stand alone and continue to be uh, important, you know, For sure. uh, milestones in the business inter- of entertainment. Um, all right. So you start your PR marketing company. What I think I really wanted to get into is, you know, when we started the show, I was talking about how when I was a young filmmaker, you know, publicity was really important in my mind. It was really important, you know, as an older filmmaker, um, you know, I get more press now, but it doesn't matter to me as much as it used to, you know, it did matter to see my name. Sure. It did matter to see what page I was on. You know, that doesn't matter as much anymore. Times have changed. What would you say to a young filmmaker that's out there trying to figure out if, publicity matters or doesn't matter or how it helps you because so many filmmakers think it matters a ton. Does it, does it not? Do you have any ideas? That's a great question. And, and you know, there are a million factors that probably play into what your priorities are, but I will tell you this because we've obviously worked with documentary filmmakers. We've worked with some of the studios on promoting their independent films. Some of them won Oscars. We've worked on some of the bigger tentpole stuff. So I, I've seen all the different parts of the food chain and worked with the filmmakers and the directors on the challenges of getting attention. Um, the biggest piece of advice that I would give to a young filmmaker if they want to create some kind of attention with the media, right? Because really we're talking about the media at this point is 
you can't look at it and what you think is important and then put it all down on a page and hand it or think a reporter is going to read it. What you really have to do is you look at, okay, who are the entertainment reporters who are, whose beat is the kind of stuff that I've made, right? Because those are the people who every day are assigned pieces by an editor that are related to the kind of stuff that you're making, right? So what you want to do is figure out who are the types of reporters that are covering the kind of stuff that you have. Because if you try and pitch someone who never covers your stuff, it's really unlikely that they're going to be able to pivot and just write a piece on you or on your, on your film. So you really have to put yourself in the shoes of the reporter. And that does mean in this day and age of learning what they write about, what you think their interests are. Some of them have their own social media. So you get an idea of their own interests and it's all about selling, right? So you always have to put yourself in the shoes of the consumer. What do you think that reporter would connect with? Because a lot of people, surprisingly, a lot of people make the same mistake over and over again. They go, my film's so important because it took me so long to make and I raised money from my grandmother in Iowa and, and, and that's my story. And you send it to a reporter who gets 50 pitches a day and he looks at it and goes, you know, everybody else is in the same boat, bro. And right. parks it. Yeah. So you have to find, you have to get creative, think out of the box, which I hate saying yeah. is so much of life is thinking out of the box, <laughs> right. but you got to be able to see what's on the other side and what do you think they would want? Not what you want them to, to have, but what do you think they would connect with? Yeah. And you, that's, that's really good advice. I think um, it's weird because there was a time when, if an article came out, you know, it was um, Saturday LA times or Sunday, New York times or whatever it was. That article would linger for weeks. <laughs> you could ride that wave, you know, and now a piece will come out on, <laughs> on your film or your stuff. It is like in a day or two, people have completely for, I mean, it doesn't even take that long, you know, now it's like three hours. Yeah. yeah. Now you put something on, on IG and it catches fire and then it's gone. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I mean, there's no time, there's no time, no publicity that makes a long lasting impression anymore. How, I mean, David, Dave, you probably have something to add here too. Like what, what are, how do you keep something out there? You know, I, you know, you and I have been working a lot on, um, love and betrayal. Right. And keeping it out there through Instagram, you know, uh, part of my marketing, plan has been to use Instagram and a lot of influencers to put out um, information on my movie. That's and, that's the key right there. And it's then. really benefited me and I try to spread it out. I yeah. try not to do it all in one week. Yeah. So I'll oh, get, yeah. you know, Mario to do one week. I'll get, you know, I asked Frankie Quinones to do another week and, you know, be real is going to do something for me on Thursday, but different weeks, different things so that we can keep it going. Is that how you do it? Yeah. You got to spread it out. I mean, you have to always be creating some kind of content because people are, the feed goes by so fast. And so you always have to put something out, even if it's similar to something you did previous. I mean, just uh, relive it again. You can, you can, it'll work. And it's funny because, um, you know, they did a piece. You you probably saw this recently too. Um, They did a piece on love and betrayal on access Hollywood and I was able to put it on Facebook and then Instagram and, you know, and then they put it on there and then, and then people keep seeing it and reading about it or, or appreciating it. But is that, what is the advice that you give your clients and people like that in terms of how to 
how to keep their stories alive. Right. Well, first of all, I want to say you've always been very comfortable with social media. And that's why I think you've done a really good job. You understand it well. That's why you've done a good job of sharing it with different different audiences through all the different forms. Well, you gave me the advice. You said, uh, you know, you got to put it out on um, LinkedIn and, and all of these different platforms. You told me this like about a month and a half ago, and I've, I totally adopted it. And now, now all my stuff, you know, everything I just said is on LinkedIn. And by the way, a lot of people checking it out and viewing it. So thank you. You need to look at all of your channels of distribution for stuff like that. Um, obviously, social media and how you do it, if you drip it out, yes, because the news cycle is so short now. And, you know, there's so much news that supersedes and then takes over. And so you also have to figure out when to place it. Because if you place something, first of all, in, in the PR business, we typically stay away from the end of the week because a lot of reporters and other people are wrapping it up, you know, so the first half of the week is, is a much better bet if you want to get attention. Right. And, you know, so that's, that's one thing I would say to a lot of people is try not to feed stuff at the end of the week because it'll probably get lost. Most people do not have a strong presence or a large following in the different types of social media, right? They might've focused on Instagram or, you know, or, or Facebook, right? So you have to really play to your strengths. And what you said earlier, the key is you have to find the people who have the reach to distribute your story. Yeah. And, and by the way, this is super important. I think I have been careful about who I want reporting about my movie because not every fan base is going to react in the same way. Um, you know, I spoke to a friend of David Dave's, that I hadn't mentioned to you, but I had spoken to one of your friends mm-hmm. that has millions of followers okay. about posting a, a for promo, me. Yeah. And he was honest. He was like, I, I just don't know if the people who follow me are going to relate to, you know, relate to this. Yeah. And I appreciated it because it didn't cost me any money. And he didn't just say, yeah, yeah, send it over. I'll, I'll post it. Right. But in the case of Mario, uh, in the case of, you know, Frankie, be real, people like that, that, can, you know, Snoop, that can say something like, you got to check this, Davy Dave, you got to check this story out. It happened here in California. It's interesting. It's crazy. This is something that you got to see. There, the, certain people will respond well to that if they feel that you're being honest. So. Any of the, anything I have moved on this has been from that position, from a authentic, I really like this. If you like something like this, you should check this out. And I think it's worked for me. Yeah. And we sort of, you and I sort of developed that Mm -hmm. idea instead of just having a promo that says like, Hey, new movie, you know, (laughs) something relatable. Yeah. Something relatable. And I think, uh, I think that's a whole new way to check this out, but also you get an article written and then you spread it out over, you know, all of these social media channels and people get to see it over and over and over again. And that's how it's, it's changing. Beer break. We are back from our beer break. I wanted to, uh, I want to get into the idea of what get, gets ink. So if you're out there and you're a filmmaker or you're trying to market anything really, talking about or putting in front of the story maybe a partner or someone you're working with that gets ink 
that has been written about before. Like I'll give you an example. I would work on projects that probably wouldn't get any ink, but Mario Lopez was in it or Jamie Lynn Sigler was in it or Jamie Presley was in it. Now I know that some of the projects that they had worked on were bigger than the ones they were working on with me. So what I would do is I would headline with their other project and then add mine to that press release. Right. So it would be Mario Lopez, host of extra. So Jamie Presley, who was the star of my name is Earl, you know, I'd use my name is Earl and her success on that. And then I'd add in my story or my movie. Uh, and then it would definitely get ink or at least get close. Absolutely. That's an incredibly valuable way to do it. Um, so I think you, people have to get out of the way of their project, right? Because most people feel this project is like their beautiful baby yeah. and that that is the news. And as you said, most of the time, the project itself is not the news. It's who's involved, right? Because every time you pitch a reporter, you have to realize, is that reporter going to write about this because it's interesting to his writer, to his audience? And half the time, if you're honest with yourself, it's probably not, or it hasn't come out yet. Right. So the people can't see it. You know, people try a lot of times too early to mm. get press. You know, my movie's coming out. Yeah. Well, very few people will write about a movie that hasn't come out yet if it's not a big No, uh, they thing. want they want to get their readers information. Hey, I'm telling you about this movie and by the way, on Friday you can rent it or go see it or or you know, pick up the DVD or whatever, right? That's, exactly. That's the point. There has to be some kind of a service to the, to the reader of that publication, right? And then, you know, the really important thing here is to make sure that you you look at all forms of of media because today if someone let's say you're you're pitching it to a distributor they're going to google you or your film right. right and i i'm sorry but at the end of the day the google results on news about your piece it'll list everything that wrote about you it could be the you know cal state northridge bugleer wrote a piece on your movie coming out or you making the movie on their campus that's there in ink it's just more ink, right? So you have to really be open to getting as many stories as you can. If you're doing something in Montana, pitch some of the papers there. Because when it gets into Google and someone types in the keywords, your name as the filmmaker or the name of the film, there will be ink there. Yeah, that's, now, a, that's you know, remarkable. I mean, it does help, right? Because if you can't get in a marquee name, just having four or five articles from even local stuff, that's the important part, I think, having as many stories about you tell whoever's looking at it really the broader story of who you are. The other thing that I would say that is important and that in some cases easier to get is endorsements or quotes. If you can show the film to someone, maybe a film critic or a friend who may be more prominent in the business than you are, having those quotes or those endorsements is, is really key for people who are hesitant. You know, those third party endorsements are invaluable for, I mean, for businesses, for movies, all of it, you know, that someone else liked it or someone else saw the value in your project. The other thing that I think you should try and do if you are trying to find out how it works is look, most reporters are inundated with pitches, right? Everybody wants something from them. Everybody wants something written about them. Actually, maybe just call and say, listen, I'm a new filmmaker. I really want to understand what's important to you. 
do you have five minutes to talk to a new filmmaker about how I should be going about this? You'd be surprised how many people, jaded, grizzled veterans, would take the five minutes because it's so different to what they're having to do all day long. You know, everybody wants to mentor. Absolutely. I agree. I think you, you have to reach out. You can't be afraid of reaching out. Congratulations on your career. I think it was a lot of fun that you gave people an idea of where you came from, how you started the ICM story and moved your way through, uh, some pretty remarkable magazines and companies and, um, and ended now as like this super cool entrepreneur of the future. Um, but thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Davey Dave, thanks uh, thanks Great. for uh, coming by and making this happen. 2000 Tootie, maybe be back next time. Tootie, we do miss you, man, but uh, you should have been reporting from the 405 on your in your Volvo. <laughs> um, all right, well, thank you guys for listening. I hope you um, gathered something from this great guest, uh, Charlie Windish Greats, and we'll see you next time on Let's Get Into Entertainment, people. The wait is over. New episodes of The Walking Dead Season 10 are premiering early February 21st on AMC+. Don't miss the extended 10th season featuring six new episodes, each focused on fan-favorite characters. Prepare for all-new high-stakes showdowns and emotional reckonings by catching up on the latest season before new episodes drop. With season binges, exclusive content, and early access to new episodes, the best Walking Dead experience is only on AMC+. Get lost in the Walking Dead universe today. Available ad-free and on demand. Sign up at amcplus.com. AMC+, only the good stuff.